I want you to think today with me about caves. Perhaps you've been to Luray Caverns or to the Lost Sea or to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Maybe you've gone spelunking, crawling through the mud, slipping through cracks in the rock with only a light of a headlamp to guide you. Maybe you've been down a shaft of a mine in the mountains. When you walk into a cave, it's almost like going to another planet. The air is thicker. There's water on the ceiling as well as on the ground. There are geological features that are only found in caves, stalagmites and stalactites. I can't even ever remember which one's on the ceiling and which one's on the ground. There are certain species of animals that live in caves. There are, there are bats that make their home in caves and, and snakes and, and, and spiders and eyeless fish in underground lakes. And then, of course, down in caves you find resources that aren't found anywhere else, coal and diamonds, other precious jewels. We also associate caves with danger. They are a place of, um, where people get lost. You hear of folks going into caves and never coming out. We heard a story several years ago, you remember, of those Chilean miners, 30-some-odd men trapped in a cave for 69 days before they were finally rescued. Or more recently, in, in 2018, um, the Thai youth soccer team that was taken into a cave and the floodwaters trapped them and they had to stay on top of these rocks for two weeks until rescue teams could get to them. We also think about predators that live in caves, bears in hibernation, or a dragon hoarding its treasure, trolls and ogres and other creatures making their home in the caves. But it's not all mystery and fear that we have to associate with caves. Um, early studies of anthropology show us that the first human beings made their home in caves. We have cave drawings to show that they lived there. Uh, so they found safety, security, a place of home within these caves. This mixture of revelation, of danger, of, of security and discovery, it's found in the stories of caves that we read about in the Bible, too. Several weeks ago, we heard the story in this rock series about Moses being put in the cleft of the rock, being put in a cave where he could see the glory of God passing by. It was from there that he was secured, and it was there that he was able to see something he otherwise would have never seen. Several hundred years after Moses, we have the story of David, the shepherd boy. He upsets King Saul, the first king of Israel, and he's on the run. He goes to a cave, we read, in Adullam, and there he gathers his father and his brothers and everybody else who's ever had a problem with King Saul, they come to David there. It's in the cave that David transforms from a shepherd into a leader. And then several years after David, several hundred years after David, the prophet Elijah is on the run from the wicked king Ahab. He ascends Mount Horeb. He goes to a cave, might be the same cave that Moses was in all those years ago, because there Elijah meets God as well and gains the courage and the perseverance he needs to continue in his mission despite the despair and distress that it brings. One of the most famous cave images, this isn't in the Bible, but it comes from the Greek philosopher Plato in about 300 BC. Plato in his Republic describes prisoners living in a cave who've never been anywhere else but the cave, and they're chained to their position 
facing a cave wall, chains that they can't even turn their head to the right or to the left. Now in the cave, there is a roaring fire behind them, but they can't see it. All they can see is the wall in front of them and the shadows that are cast upon it. So their entire sense of reality is based on the shadows that are cast on the wall. They have to define and make their life all based on images they've never really seen, touched, or experienced. Plato goes on to describe the moment that one of those prisoners is freed of their bondage and turns around to see. They're thrown into distress and confusion when they're trying to see these actual objects that they've only ever known as shadows in the past and to learn their new names and their new purposes. Their eyes are blinded by the light of the fire, and as they're guided out of the cave and into the sun, they have to appropriate to this entirely new reality that they've never known before. It would take time and patience to adjust to seeing the world rightly. And such a person who's led out of the cave, they can never go back down there into the cave because they would be rejected by those who've remained in bondage, in chains down there, because they cannot envision a world that they've never been able to see, and they would turn on this one who had been freed. A person who has been exposed to light like that will be destroyed. They try to make their life back again in the darkness. Plato writes, whether true or false, my opinion is that in the world of knowledge, the idea of good appears last of all and is seen only with an effort. And when seen, is also inferred to be the universal author of all things beautiful and right, parent of light and of the Lord of light in this visible world and the immediate source of reason and truth in the intellectual and that this is the power upon which he would act rationally, either in public or private life. He must have his eye fixed. The educated, reasonable, knowledgeable person, therefore, is one who comes out of the cave, out of the dark, who appropriates to the higher plane of knowledge of the good. Contrast that image, then, of the cave in Plato with this tomb hewn in the rock that we read about today with Joseph of Arimathea where Jesus' body is laid, a heavy stone rolled in front of the entrance. Jesus is laid to rest in the land of bats and snakes and dragons guarding their treasure. Jesus is given over to the moss and to the stalagmite he is there trapped under the earth with the miners and with the soccer team as the waters rise, lost to the overland. He is extinguished as one who is unwise, as one who could not appropriate to the light of the sun. And so he is cast into eternal shadow. Now, every commentary... I read this week on this passage in Matthew, all these Bible scholars. The best they could give me about this tomb scene in Matthew was to say something like, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who owned this tomb, and so this shows us that rich people could be followers of Jesus. Or they say, in Matthew's time, they were concerned that there were rumors that Jesus' disciples had stolen the body on the day of resurrection, and so Matthew emphasizes the size of the stone that is rolled in front of the tomb. How boring, how bland of information is this? 
It's missing the entire point. We are witnessing here in the tomb hewn from the rock the great reversal of how we understand darkness and light. We are seeing the undoing of Plato's definition of knowledge. A person does not ascend out of the cave, blinkingly into the light, abandoning their formal moral and intellectual ignorance to achieve the good that is illumined by the sun. The very light of divinity, Matthew is telling us, came into the world and was extinguished by the light of humanity who thought it knew better. And so God is plunged into the cave into darkness. God is entirely in the cave as one with no light. And so the power we proclaim from this sanctuary today is not one of blinding and glittering glory. It is one who goes into the darkness, into our darkness, not even into the darkness as one bearing a torch to offer us some light, but the one who becomes the very darkness with us there in the stench alongside us as we sit chained with our necks even unable to turn to the right and to the left. The tomb hewn in the rock is the revelation of who God is. The one who goes to our death. The one who pulls us from the rot and the fear of the predators and the rising floodwaters. Actually, by being extinguished of all light, by entering the darkness of human suffering fully, we are rescued. We are saved. We don't have to grope our way to the surface, clinging to the cave wall, hoping to emerge into the light. No, this one who comes into the complete and utter darkness with us bursts the stone to smithereens and brings us into some kind of light we could have never fashioned for ourselves. That's the gospel. And it runs contrary to all of our systems and our organizations and our merit-seeking strategies. But occasionally, occasionally some artist, some poet, some musician, some author reimagines, retells in a way this old story so that it comes alive in our lives once more and points us to the truth that is revealed in the reversal that happens in this cave. So I recently finished reading the book Holes with our daughter Joanna. This book by Lewis Satcher tells the story of Stanley Yelnats. Stanley is a young man who is sent to Camp Green Lake as punishment for being caught with a stolen pair of baseball cleats that belong to a Hall of Fame baseball player. Camp Green Lake is a place of incredible suffering and abuse. Each resident of the camp has to dig a five foot wide by five foot deep hole in the ground every day in the baking Texas sun. While Stanley is there, he befriends a boy named Zero. He's named that because that's what his assumed worth is, Zero. One day, Zero loses it in front of their abusive overseers, and Zero strikes one of them with his shovel, and then he takes off running into the desert. Now, none of the counselors, none of the supervisors chase after him. They leave him, knowing that he will die of dehydration and thirst 
Instead, they just go back to their office. They delete his record from their files. Zero was a ward of the state. Nobody's going to come looking for him. Unnerved, several days later, Stanley, worried about his friend, takes off after him out into the desert. He finally finds Zero almost dead, and using their meager resources, he puts Zero on his back, and he carries him up a mountain known as God's Thumb, a place on the horizon they had seen, a mountain where thunderstorms would form from time to time. Exhausted and spent, they eventually reach the top, the summit of the mountain, and there discover water and onions to revive them. Now what Stanley doesn't know at the time, but what has been revealed throughout the book, is that generations ago, Stanley's ancestor had gone to a fortune teller in order to help him in his love life. And in return, the fortune teller wanted him to carry her up a mountain to drink from its restorative waters. But the man, excited about his promises, forgot his end of the bargain. And thus a curse was placed on his descendants. They'd suffered terrible luck ever since, including Stanley himself. What the reader learns as he carries Zero up God's thumb is that Zero is the descendant of that fortune teller. And so without knowing it, by carrying him up that mountain to those healing waters, Stanley undoes the curse that was placed on his family by a member generation and generation ago. Now once they've been on the mountain, they've had time to drink, they've been revived, Zero confesses something to Stanley. Zero tells him that he was suffering homelessness and stole those baseball cleats from an auction to help the shelter. When he heard the police sirens in pursuit, he had flung them over an overpass and they had landed on Stanley's back just as the police arrived. And so Stanley was sent to Camp Green Lake because of the crime of Zero. Stanley who had carried Zero up this mountain for salvation, had been suffering in this hellscape because of him. And so Stanley undoes a curse that he did not bring upon himself, and he saves the one who is responsible for his own suffering in this place. Eventually, Stanley and Zero return to the camp, and they discover that Stanley's luck has changed. He undid the curse, after all. The state of Texas has declared that he's innocent and that he can go home. But Stanley refuses to leave unless Zero can come with him, the one who had caused Stanley to be in the camp in the first place. This commitment to Zero ultimately results in the whole camp being shut down, and Stanley and Zero return home together. I have no idea. I looked this week, and I couldn't find anything, if Lewis Satcher is a Christian or has any interest in this cave story with Jesus that we read today. But I will tell you that this story is a new way of telling the old story of the gospel. The curse of humanity undone by the one who suffers unjustly 
the one who is condemned of our sin and yet carries us out of the cave and refuses to be released to freedom without pulling us in tow. Holes won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature in 1998. It won the Newbery Medal in 1999. In 2003, Disney turned it into a feature film, and in 2012, it was named the sixth most important book in young people's literature by the School Library Journal. So friends, don't domesticate this story of the tomb hewn out of rock. Its telling still has the power to capture the minds and hearts of those who would hear it, even if they're not exactly sure why it connects so much to them. This reversal of the power of the darkness and the light, this cave and freedom, this fear and this hope. From that rocky tomb we are saved. We are carried to life. We are held by the one who suffers for us but who refuses to be free without us. Now in the book, in Holes, every boy who goes to Camp Green Lake is given a nickname by his peers that he shares a cabin with. There's some nicknames like X-Ray, Armpit, Zigzag, Twitch. But the name that they give to Stanley they call him Caveman. 